This morning's Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 12 and going through to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. You can follow along on the screens behind me, or if you're using the Blue Church Bibles, please turn to page 968. 968, Matthew 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks for that. Morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. As Andrew said, my name is Mark, and Alicia and I are very excited and happy 
to be here and really encouraged to see that things are ticking along really nicely in the post-Clayton era. And also just reading in the, the leaflet just then, it sounds like there's some really positive steps moving forwards with looking for a new senior pastor. So we'll keep that in our prayers and look forward to, to hearing more good news in that journey. I was here a couple of months ago, I think, I think it was late May during the, the Luke series and I, I was up here and I was preaching, I was, I was looking at everyone, I was realising everyone in the, the middle section is really engaged, looking at me, positive body language, that sort of pe- thing, people on the sides just uh, staring off in the distance, don't seem engaged at all and I'm trying to sort of make eye contact and you know, gesture towards the people and then I realise upwards there are screens right, right behind me, so I'll... I won't, won't take any offence if you're, if you're not looking at me. I won't make that mistake again. Uh, but if you've got a service leaflet in front of you, um, there, were, there is an outline on the inside which uh, gives you a bit of an idea of the direction that I'll be heading in this morning. You'll see that the first heading that I've got is a classic sermon begins. Now, I'm not talking about the one that I'm about to give, but to one that, about one that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago, uh, which we read the start of in the first part of Matthew chapter 5. It's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. You might be familiar with it. It's one of the best-known parts of the Bible. And I realize this is a bit of a, a bit of a unique thing in that I'm, I'm preaching this week, and then next week you're looking at something completely different. You're not, you're not following on from, from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, but if you were to read on, uh, you'd come across a lot of famous and thought-provoking quotations that Jesus makes. So as we get into chapter 5, there's the radical commandment of Jesus to turn our cheek uh, when someone hits us and let them strike the other cheek as well. And there's also the instruction to gouge out your eye if it's causing you to sin. And then we get to chapter 6, we have the Lord's Prayer, which you, you may well be familiar with, uh, as well as the sobering warning that we can't serve God and money. And there's also some helpful comments about worry and anxiety in chapter 6 as well. We then get to chapter 7 and we're told not to point out the speck in our brother's eye when there's a, there's a big plank coming out of our own eye. And we're also told to enter through the narrow gate that leads to life rather than the wide gate that leads to destruction. It's a memorable and intriguing set of teaching that Jesus gives us in this. But what's it actually all about? What is Jesus trying to achieve in his Sermon on the Mount? Is it a set of instructions about how Christians ought to live? Or is it more than that? Is it showing how the intent of the Jewish law needs to be fulfilled in our hearts? Well, it's actually both of these things, but it's so much more than that as well. Uh, If we look carefully at the passage that we've just read, it becomes clear that Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is grounded in the call to be on mission, to fish for people, as Jesus puts it. These are instructions for mission that Jesus is giving here. Instructions for the greatest fishing trip in human history. And what the the context and the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount show us is that the Christian life is to be a life of disciple making. And it's a life lived knowing our need for God's grace and the blessings that he gives to us. Uh, So at this point, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. If we look back to to chapters 3 and the first part of chapter 4, We've seen that Jesus has been baptized. He's had the the Holy Spirit come down on him and he's gone off into the desert and been tempted by the devil. And now he begins his public ministry by preaching, verse 17 there, that the kingdom of heaven has come near and calling disciples to follow him as well. 
And there are two things that really stand out as Jesus begins calling disciples uh, to follow him. So firstly, Peter and Andrew, and then to James and John in this passage. Two things that stand out. Firstly, the decision to follow Jesus is all in. It's all or nothing. Peter and Andrew immediately leave their nets behind and follow after Jesus. James and John, they leave their father in the boat and they go and follow Jesus. It's a, it's a once for all decision. Following Jesus takes priority over everything else. And secondly, it's a call to mission. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will send you out to fish for people. That's the mission statement of discipleship. Don't know who here is a fan of uh, the Mission Impossible movies. Alicia and I quite enjoy watching them. And if, if you've watched a few of them, what you'll realize is that every movie begins... How does every movie begin? It begins with Tom Cruise getting told, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is... Dot, 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 whatever the mission is. And the rest of the movie, the whole purpose of the rest of the movie is Tom Cruise and his mates going out and making sure that that mission gets accomplished. Well, this call to fish for people is right at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. It's the mission statement of discipleship. Now, is that how you think of Christianity? It's more than just having good morals. It's more than just following after God ourselves. But it's being on mission to see other people come to know Jesus, come to share in these great blessings as well, the joys of his kingdom. And so Jesus calls these men to follow him. And he then goes throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming about the kingdom of heaven, uh, healing people who are sick or demon-possessed. And you can imagine, news spreads about this pretty quickly, and people are coming from all directions to hear about Jesus, traveling great distances. So Syria was a region that that stretched out for miles to the north of Galilee. Uh, The Decapolis was the name of 10 cities that were to the east. I'm just pointing in vague directions. I've completely lost my sense of direction of which way north and east is, but just bear with me. And Jerusalem was about 100 kilometers south. As well, So to, to put this into modern terms, if Jesus was preaching in the middle of the Adelaide CBD, you've got people coming down from Mount Barker, you've got people coming down from the, the northern suburbs, and you've got people walking all the way from Victor Harbour uh, to come along to hear what Jesus has to say. It's pretty impressive. People were travelling a long way to see Jesus. Crowds were converging on him to hear his teaching. And so what does Jesus do to address the crowd? Well, he sits down on a mountain and begins to teach his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is a message for Jesus' disciples. Now, we've only met four of them so far in Matthew's Gospel. We've we've met Peter and Andrew and James and John. Quite possibly, Jesus has called the other eight as well during this time. So he's got all 12 disciples possibly listening here. So Jesus has seen the crowds of people, people who need to hear the good news about the kingdom of heaven. They need to hear this news. They need to believe it. And so he instructs his disciples on how they can reach these people. And this is Jesus' ministry pattern that we see. He sends his disciples out to make disciples. If we're to read on a bit further in Matthew's gospel, we'll get to chapter 10, and we see that Jesus sends his 12 disciples out with instructions to heal people and to tell them about the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, most famously, the the verse that Bianca referred to, 
just earlier, after his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations. So to be a Christian is to be someone who's been called to be part of this mission. And it's this mission that Jesus is preparing his disciples for as he begins this famous sermon. And he begins it from chapter 5, verse 3, with what we commonly refer to as the Beatitudes today. So it's really describing the character of a disciple and, and the rewards that they can expect. It's really giving us a portrait of what discipleship looks like. It's a bit of a, bit of a contrasting portrait in many ways, isn't it? There's quite a, quite a paradox going on here because we're blessed and yet we're also poor, mourning, hungry, persecuted. There are two, two very important ways that the Beatitudes describe the life of the disciple. I've got them written on the outline there. Firstly, it's a life that flows from spiritual poverty. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the key to the heart attitude of discipleship. We need to understand our spiritual bankruptcy. That's at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To know that in our own strength and by our own efforts, we aren't good enough to please God. We just aren't good enough. Because of sin, we fall short of who he created us to be. We fall short of the lives he wanted us to live. And so there's a wedge between us and God that even our best deeds aren't enough to bridge. Which means that we need Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross was the only way that we can be made right with God. So even on our best day, we depend 100% on the cross to make us right with God, to be members of the kingdom of heaven. The life of discipleship is a life lived humbly under God's grace. Alicia and I were watching Les Mis last night, the, um, the recent movie with the one with Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe in it. And there's, there's a real contrast between two of the characters in Les Mis. The, um, I guess the main character is a guy called Jean Valjean who's who's been imprisoned for, for 19 years and he's sort of feeling, he, he gets let out on parole. He's in a really low place, really hopeless position in life. And he steals a whole lot of treasure from a church, gets caught and thinks he's going to go back to jail. But the bishop of that church lies to the policeman and, and says, no, I gave that treasure to this man. He can go free. And so he's able to go from there and, and rebuild his life, and he never forgets the grace that he was shown. He, he goes out from there knowing that he's a new person from this day onwards, that, that he can live the life he has, not because of good choices he's made, but, but because grace has been shown to him. He's been given something that he doesn't deserve. One of the other main characters is a police inspector called Javert. So he's, he was one of the guys that was overseeing Valjean while he was in prison, and Javert's a real rules-based guy. He lives, lives by the book. He is completely, completely follows the rules to the letter in everything that he does. And as soon as Valjean breaks parole and escapes, Javert makes it his job to hunt Valjean down and, and to make sure that he gets the full letter of the law thrown at him. And it reaches a bit of a climax when uh, Valjean has the chance to, to take revenge on Javert and, and to 
take the life of this man who ruined so much of his life. But instead, he lets him go. He lets him walk free. And Javert leaves there, and he can't understand what's happened. He's a a man who's lived by the, the laws, lived by the rules all this time, and he's been shown grace, and it's completely foreign to him. And he ends up taking his own life because he just can't accept the grace that's been given to him. So it's a contrast between one person who knew his need for grace and who embraced it and lived by it, and another one who just couldn't handle it at all. So if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, is this something that you're convinced of? That when it comes to you and to God, you bring nothing to the table? Now take it that this is the very first thing that Jesus says in his mission instructions, because it's mission critical. You know, I'm not a disciple ready to to go out and make other disciples unless I've completely owned my own spiritual bankruptcy. If I don't live each day with the cross of Christ as my frame of reference. Because it's at the cross, isn't it, where our self-righteousness dies. It's where we realize how much we rely on God. And it's our foundation for telling this good news to other people as well. And a good indication that we've owned our spiritual bankruptcy is that we recognize in ourselves some of the other marks of discipleship that we see in the first part of chapter 5 there. Because they all flow out of our spiritual poverty. If I know that I live as a sinful person, I'm saved by grace alone, I'll mourn. I'll mourn about the ways that I fall short of who God wants me to be and, and how other people do as well. I'll hunger and thirst for righteousness, both my own righteousness and that of those around me as well. I'll be meek rather than asserting myself on other people for my own advantage. And I'll be merciful, knowing the mercy that's been shown to me. And I'll endure persecution and evil that comes my way for speaking about Jesus. So discipleship flows out of spiritual poverty, and it's also focused on the reward of heavenly riches. I think that's the the first point on the the second page of the outline there. The blessings that, that Jesus declares in these verses are the reward for members of the kingdom of heaven. The promise of comfort and fulfillment for those who mourn their lack of righteousness. The promise of inheritance for those who, who give up much in this life. And the promise of seeing God. Jesus is promising that when the kingdom of heaven comes, when everything is fully realized for what it is, it will all be more than worthwhile for us. But they're not all future promises that have been made here, are they? In verses 3 and 10, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples of Jesus are present members of the kingdom of heaven. And so even though many of these kingdom blessings, well, all of these kingdom blessings will only be realized later on in the future, we still have a taste of them now, don't we? We have the comfort of knowing that Jesus has dealt with our sins, that he has taken our punishment on the cross, that we don't have, even if we still grieve the consequences of our sin in the here and now, we know that we won't live with them forever. We have the comfort of knowing that, we have the assurance of knowing God's mercy for us 
that we can call God our Father. Even if we don't see him face to face yet, we can come before him as our Father. We can, we can pray to him in this way. So the life of discipleship won't always be an easy one, but it is a well-rewarded one. And so the heart motivations of the disciple, Jesus says, are the grace that we live under and the kingdom rewards that we're living in light of. Verses 13 to 16 then show how all of this plays out for others to see around us. Jesus uses the illustration of salt and light and a town on a hill to show how distinctive the life of a disciple ought to be. It should stand out to the surrounding world like a a city on a hill, like a, a light in a dark house, like salt in a meal. If you've ever been out to a restaurant and they've served your chips up without salt on them, you'll, you'll realise just how much of a difference salt makes. I've had that happen. I wouldn't recommend it. In fact, with salt, there's, perhaps there's a double meaning that Jesus intends here because, of course, salt isn't just used as a flavouring for food. It's also used as a preservative to, to help things to last longer. And so there's a sense in which the life of a disciple should preserve what's good in society. Uh, that Christians should be a noticeable and positive presence, which, which is the, for the benefit of the world around us. The key message, though, that Jesus is driving at here is that, that the disciple, verse 16, should live a life of good deeds that bring glory to God, that bring other people to glorify God. So a distinctive life that points others to God. So at the start of the passage that we just read in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, Matthew says that Jesus came as a light to those living in darkness. And Jesus now tells his disciples, you are that light. You are the light. The kingdom of heaven is made visible through you. So in a way, disciples of Jesus are kind of like the moon in a way. Like the moon looks really bright when you're seeing it at night. The moon isn't actually a bright thing at all. The moon's just a a massive rock out in space. But it's the light of the sun that shines on the moon that causes the moon to to shine light down on earth. And that's what we are. We're shining Jesus' light for the world around us to see. And if our mission is to make disciples, we ought to live lives consistent with this message, consistent with this mission that we're on. Alicia was catching up with a, a friend a while ago, a friend who's sort of got a bit of a church background but hasn't, hasn't taken on that faith as an adult. And this, this friend was saying, you know, I'd kind of, I might think a bit more of Christianity and be more likely to follow it if it wasn't for all the Christians I'd met who'd acted really badly. That's a really hard thing to hear, isn't it? To hear, to hear that the witness of Christians in her life has actually been one that's led her away from church rather than towards it. The world needs to see disciples of Jesus living distinctively good lives, being a a noticeable and positive presence in the world. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, let your light shine before all people so that all people may see your good deeds and think that you're a really good person. He doesn't say that, does he? No, the aim is that people who see our good deeds glorify God, not us. 
which suggests that our deeds need to be accompanied by words, don't they? People must be able to connect our behavior with the loving God who we're serving and, and living for and the good news that we're living in response to. And it also raises a deeper question, doesn't it? Which is, whose glory am I seeking in my life? Am I seeking God's glory? Or am I seeking my own glory? It's quite a, a challenging question, isn't it? Because all of us care about how people perceive us. All of us care very deeply about how the people around us think about us. And the challenge for the disciple is to live a life that brings glory to God rather than to ourselves. Because a person doesn't become a disciple of Jesus and enter the kingdom of heaven when they realize what a great person I am, do they? They become a disciple and they enter the kingdom of heaven when they realize their need for Jesus, when they repent of their sins, when they turn away from their sins and commit to living for God and for his glory. The reality is, though, that our good deeds won't always cause people to respond favorably to us, will they? Quite often the biblical view on certain issues of life is one that's, one that's quite divisive, one that, one that people can often find repulsive. And so Jesus has already mentioned that persecution is part of discipleship. And what we're seeing is that the light that we shine is not always going to be a light that people will respond favorably to. It's not always going to be a light that people want shone on them. And so as we reflect on the call to disciple-making that Jesus makes to us here and on these mission instructions that he gives to us, there are questions that we need to go away thinking deeply about. Firstly, who am I on mission to? Who are the, the people in my life who, they don't know Jesus, but they do know me? And what are the opportunities that I have to share Jesus with them, to be able to, with my, with my thoughts, with my words, with my actions, to be able to share Jesus with them, to, to bring them towards accepting the blessings of his kingdom. Is that what I'm longing for? Am I longing to see them come to faith? And am I praying for it? Am I committing to praying for these people in my life? And am I beginning my mission on the right foundation, which is with an awareness of my own sin and my own unworthiness, knowing that I'm saved by God's grace. I'm counted worthy in his sight because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Is that the foundation of my mission? More opportunities do I have this week to stand out for God's glory, to be salt and light in the world, to show the difference that Jesus has made in my life and in my heart, and to be ready to talk about it with other people. Where are those opportunities going to come up? If you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, called not only to follow him, but to go out and to make other disciples, to join in his mission of making disciples. The, the song that we sang just before, A Song for the Nations, such an appropriate song to go with this passage, knowing that the mission we have as disciples to go out and to see other disciples made for God's glory. And of course, we do that in response to the undeserved grace that we have in Jesus, the grace that we live under and the rewards that we know are ours in Jesus. We do it by living lives that point people to God, that they might glorify our Father in heaven, 
and enjoy the rich blessings of the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful blessing that it is to be disciples of Jesus, to know that this is something that, it's an identity that we don't have based on our own strength or our own achievements or anything like that. We don't make ourselves right with you, but that Jesus has done that for us. We have grace, rich grace that we have not deserved. We pray that we would live in light of that, that we would live each day responding to your mercy, wanting other people to know this grace and to know the rich blessings of the kingdom of heaven as well. We pray for opportunities this week to be able to speak to the people you've placed in our lives, to be able to call them to respond to you in this way as well. And we ask that you would equip us to live lives that bring honor and glory to you, lives that enable us to have a a foundation to be able to have these conversations. We pray that you would use us, your disciples, to make many more disciples for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.